Welcome back, my fellow creatives. You're here on You've Got Five Pages to Tell Me It's Good to see if a new release from my at my local library can indeed, in five pages, tell me it's good. Now this one, is it seems to be it's a little bit older, but being an, an historical book, it, it sounded really intriguing. <clears throat> it's called The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn. And it's uh, set in 19... Um, yes, sorry. <clears throat> 1920s, 30s, and into World War II. Um, but it's something that uh, utilize, you know, utilizes that child perspective. So we're going to be seeing a lot of um, change and growth, but also, you know, a unique insight into the past. And it was something about the title, Whalebone Theater, and it, it really intrigued me about if this was like maybe some sort of metaphor or something. And <clears throat> according to the blurb, actually, no. Um, one blustery night in 1928, a whale washes up on the shores of the English Channel. By law, it belongs to the king, but 12-year-old orphan Christabel Seagrave has other plans. She and the rest of the household, list some people, build a theater from the beast's skeletal ribcage. Within the whalebone theater, Christabel can escape her feckless step-parents and brisk governesses, and her imagination comes to life. So... That's really cool. Uh, just that they turned something so grotesque into a thing of promise and imagination and beauty. And then just the rest of the blurb, just so we can see where this is all going. As Christabel grows into a headstrong young woman, World War II rears its head. She and her brother Digby becomes British secret agents on separate missions in Nazi-occupied France. A more dangerous kind of play acting, it turns out. Um, so I find the premise here to be pretty intriguing. And again, I like a good historical piece every now and then. So let's see what act, uh, the act one, as it says here, uh, of the Whalebone Theater, what this brings to us. I, I mean, for the record, I do like that we don't have any prologue, so that's automatically a plus. <clears throat> the chapter is called The Last Day of the Year, 31st of December, 1919, Dorset. Christabel picks up the stick. It fits well in her hand. She is in the garden, waiting with the rest of the household for her father to return with her new mother. Uniformed servants blow on cold fingers. Rooks caw half-heartedly from the trees surrounding the house. It is the last day of December, the dregs of the year. The afternoon is fading and the lawn a quagmire of mud and old snow, which three-year-old Christabel stamps across in her lace-up leather boots, holding the stick like a sword, a miniature sentry in a brass-buttoned winter coat. <clears throat> she swishes the stick to and fro, enjoying the sound it makes, uses it to spoon a piece of grubby snow into her mouth. 
The snow is as chilly on her tongue as the frost flowers that form on her attic window, but less clinging. It tastes disappointingly nothingy. Somewhere too far away to be bothered about, her nanny is calling her name. Christabel puts the noise away with, from her with a blink. She spies snowdrops simpering at the edge of the garden. Christabel's father, Jasper Seagrave, and his new bride are, at that moment, seated side by side in a horse-drawn carriage, traveling up the driveway towards Jasper's family home. Chilcombe, a many-gabled, many-chimneyed, ivy-covered manor house with an elephantine air of weary grandeur. In outline, it is a series of sagging triangles and tall chimney stacks, and it has huddled on a wooded cliff overhanging the ocean for 400 years. Its leaded windows narrowed against sea winds and historical progress. Its general appearance one of gradual subsidence. I I just got to pause here because we're at the bottom of the first page. So we have a lovely balance of sensory detail and action because this is written in present, present tense. <clears throat> so because the time has been established, I mean, we know we're going to be moving forward through the years, but we're starting early, starting when our protagonist is three. Got it. And we're able to see her and get a sense of her personality already in her choices as a toddler, which I think is really important that Joanna Quinn does this. I think it's so tempting as a writer to have your character do what you want your character to do to do for the sake of plot for the sake of moving the story forward and yeah there's going to be a degree of that but the character also has to do and say things that fit the character that's been established and here we're already getting a sense of christabel's defiance i mean she's ignoring the nanny can't be bothered with them um is already uh, very imaginative. I mean, doing the play, pretending with the stick. Is already looking for something interesting and new because eating snow. Yep. <laughs> yes, snow that tastes very nothingy. I, I love like the just the little childlike descriptives. They're not all over the place. Just once in a while is just enough for us to keep in touch with the age of our protagonist. So overall, this is really nicely done. <coughs> Sorry about that. I'm trying to get over a thing here. All right. <clears throat> so let's see what we can find next. The staff at Chilcombe say today will be a special day, but Christabel is finding it dull. There is too much waiting, too much straightening up. It is not a day that would make a good story. Christabel likes stories that feature blunder buses and dogs, not brides and waiting. She picks up the remains of the snowdrops. She hears the bone crunch of gravel beneath wheels. Her father is the first to disembark from the carriage, as round and satisfied as a broad bean popped from a pod. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really great simile there. <laughs> um, then a single foot in button boot appears, followed by a velvet hat, which tilts upwards to look at the house. Christabel watches her father's whiskery face. He too is looking upwards, gazing at the young woman in the hat, who, 
while still balanced on the step of the carriage, is significantly taller than him. Christabel marches towards them through the snow. She is almost there when her nanny grabs her, hissing, What have you got in your hands? Where are your gloves? Jasper turns. Why is the child so dirty? The dirty child ignores her father. She is not interested in him, grumpy angry man. <laughs> Sorry, that's just great. That's, that's a total three-year-old mindset if you've been around toddlers. Yep, that's... Who cares if they're dirty or not? Whatever, moving on to what's new and neat. Uh, so yeah, instead she approaches the new mother, offering a handful of soil and snowdrop petals. But the new mother is adept at receiving clumsy gifts. She has, after all, accepted the blustering proposal of Jasper Seagrave, a rotund widower with an unmanageable beard and a limp. For me, says the new mother, and it is not a question. How novel. She steps down from the carriage and smiles, floating about her a hand which comes to rest on Christabel's head. As if that were what the child is for. <laughs> Beneath her velvet hat, the new mother is wrapped in a smart wool traveling suit and mink fur stole. Jasper turns to the staff and announces, Allow me to present my new wife, Mrs. Rosalind Seagrave. There is a ripple of applause. Christabel finds it odd that the new mother should have the name Seagrave, which is her name. <laughs> she looks at the soil in her hand, then turns it over, allowing it to fall into the new mother's boots to see what happens then. That's great. Um, that's, that, that's just a nice little, little turn there. Um, because again, we're sticking with that child logic, which again, that's what a child would do. It's like, why is your name the same as mine? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's, that's very fitting. And now we have a little space break and we're going to shift into the wife's perspective which I think promises to be interesting here. Okay. <clears throat> Rosalind moves away from the unsmiling girl. A motherless child, she reminds herself, lacking in feminine guidance. She wonders if she should have brought some ribbons for it's tangled. It's tangled. Oh my goodness. Right then and there. I, I, I'm sorry, I gotta pause. Word choices matter. Again, word choices give us a sense of our characters, of our voices, even when they are not first person. And right off the bat, Rosalind refers to the toddler Christabel as it, which should say a lot for how this stepmom is going to be treating this child. It just, it promises all the evil stepmom uh, tropes, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that Joanna Quinn's going to jump into trope land. I'm just saying we, we can tell already this relationship is not going to be a lovey-dovey one. Okay. She wonders if she should have brought some ribbons for its tangled black hair or a tortoise shell comb. But then Jasper is at her side, leading her to the doorway. Finally got you here, he says. Chill comb's not quite at its best. Used to have a splendid set of iron gates at the entrance. As they cross the threshold, he is talking about the coming, coming events celebrations. He says the villagers are delighted by their arrival. 
A marquee has been erected behind the house. A pig will be roasted, and everyone will toast the nuptials with tankards of ale. He winks at her now, bristling in his tweed suit, and he, she is unsure what is meant by this covering and uncovering of one eye, this stagey wince. Rosalind, Rosalind Seagrave, nay Elliot, 23 years old, described in the April 1914 edition of Tadler magazine as a quote-unquote poised London debutante, walks through the stone entranceway of Chilcombe into a wood-paneled galleried room that extends upwards like a medieval knight's hall. It is a hollow funnel, dimly lit by flickering candles and brass wall brackets, and the air has the unused quality of empty chapels in out-of-the-way places. It's also a very fitting description. I, I, I gotta pause there again because there's there's a lot being said in that kind of metaphor. Empty chapels and out-of-the-way places, there's a reason those are still standing. People see them as some sort of holy uh, holy ground, someplace sacred that needs to be preserved, must be preserved at all costs, even no matter how run down or sad or decrepit it looks, it's still precious. <clears throat> and I think we're getting a sense of that now of Chilcombe where it is, yeah, out of the way. It is not paid much attention to by the everyday person, um, but it is still seen as important. Like it must be preserved. It cannot be taken down for the sake of progress. It should not be changed. It must be, even if what it is being right now certainly ain't what it was. So I find that to be a really interesting choice, especially a chapel. I mean, it, it, it makes it holy. Makes it more important than the everyday thing. Back to it. It is a peculiar feeling to enter a strange house knowing it contains her future. Rosalind looks around, trying to take it in before it notices her. Oh, interesting. There is a fireplace at the back of the hall large stone and unlit crossed swords hang above it there is not much in the way of furniture and it does not attract her as she hoped a carved oak coffer with an iron hinge a suit of armor holding a spear in its metal hand a grandfather clock a molting christmas tree and a grand piano topped by a vase of lilies the piano she knows is a wedding present from her husband but it has been put to one side beneath the stuffed head of a stag <clears throat> Around the walls droop more mounted animal heads, glass-eyed lions and antelopes, along with ancient tapestries showing people in profile gesticulating with arrows. A blue is the last color to fade in tapestry. What were once cheerful depiction of, depictions of battle are now mournful undersea scenes. To the right of the fireplace is a curving wooden staircase leading to the upper floors of the house. While on either side of her, worn Persian rugs lead through arched doorways into dark rooms that lead to more dark doorways to dark rooms. And so it goes on like an illustration of infinity. The heel of her boot catches on a rug as she steps forward. They will have to move the rugs, she thinks, when they have parties. Okay, I'll just go to the end of the section here. Jasper appears beside her, talking to the butler. 
Tell me, Blythe, has my errant brother arrived? Couldn't be bothered to show his face at the wedding. <clears throat> the butler gives an almost imperceptible shake of his head, for this is how Chilcomas run, with gestures so familiar and worn down that they have become the absence of gestures, the impression of something that used to be there, the shape of the fossil left in the stone. Jasper sniffs, addresses his wife. The maids will show you to your room. Rosalind is, ex is escorted up the staircase, passing a series of paintings depicting men in ruffs pausing mid-hunt to have their portraits done, resting stockinged calves on the still-warm bodies of boars. My goodness, and then that goes back to Christabel. Um, and... I don't think we're going to have time to read it. Um, well, we could try and get a little bit in. Christabel watches from a corner. She has tucked herself away behind a wooden umbrella and stand... I'm sorry. She has tucked herself behind a wooden umbrella stand in the shape of a little Indian boy. His outstretched arms make a circle to hold umbrellas, riding crops, and her father's walking sticks. She waits until the new mother is out of sight, then runs across the hall to the back staircase, which is concealed from view behind the main staircase. This takes her down to below stairs, the servants' realm, the kitchen, scullery, storerooms, and cellars. Here, in the roots of the house, she can find a hiding place and examine her new treasures, the stick and the crescents of soil beneath her fingernails. <sighs> Those are treasures. I love it. Okay, I know we should probably keep going a little bit but i just wanted to highlight um that we have this sense of you know the clash of past and present and this 23 year old debutante who is getting ready to drag this out of the way chapel of a place into the present day, whether it likes it or not, this place that is so worn down. <laughs> I loved this. The gestures have become the absence of gestures. And it's such a, again, it's such a, the, the, Joanna Quinn knows her metaphors. Oh my goodness. The shape of the fossil left in the stone. So something you know what it was, and yet even the remains are gone. It's so old, the remains are gone. That's just, that's such a powerful visual. I love it. So I'm intrigued. <clears throat> I almost kind of wish like the whole story could just be set with three-year-old Christabel though. I love, <laughs> I love the, 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 how the voice changes for her, but it, it, this is, this is very promising. I, I can see why, let's see, what is this? This is a debut. Yeah. So good on Joanna Quinn. I'm loving the language. The pacing is really fun. And I'm so glad this is written in present tense. So it feels like we are in movement with these different characters. Uh, we'll see if I find another great historical thing next week. Or maybe it'll be something completely different. I don't know. We'll find out. Until then, read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>